0: So, today we will be reading the American political tradition written by Richard Hofstadter, as well as provide explanation, opinion, analyze, and also tying to current events. It starts off as Richard Hofstadter, one of the nation's leading historians, explores the real thoughts and motivations behind the men whom all schoolchildren have been taught to revere as founding fathers. Hofstadter's classic work points out the ambivalence of those who wrote the constitution. They viewed human beings as selfish and untrustworthy. Yet they strongly believed in the importance of self-government. The founders' ambivalence towards democracy led them to design the political system. The United States still lives with Today, one in which each interest or branch or layer of government or economic class or region would be checked and balanced by competing in interest, Hofstadter goes on to interpret what the near-sacred idea of liberty meant to the founders. Liberty was not really related to democracy. He contends, but rather ensured, the freedom to attain and enjoy private property. To make this idea clearer, test the author's thesis against current political debates. As I analyzed the introduction, I understood that the founders didn't go by a book, but by what they believed in. The men who drew up the Constitution in Philadelphia during the summer of 1787 had a vivid Calvinistic sense of human evil and damnation and believed with hopes that men are selfish and contentious. There, they were men of affairs, merchants, lawyers, planters, businessmen, speculators, investors, Having seen human nature on display in the market, the courtroom, the legislative chamber, and in every secret path and alleyway where wealth and power are courted, they felt they knew it in all its frailty. To them, a human being was an atom of self-interest. They did not believe in a man but they did believe in power of a good political constitution to control him. I assimilate this with people who are just seen as money makers for an industry and not really caring about who they are as a person or what the capability of them doing this may be an abstract notion to ascribe to practical men but in follows the language that the fathers themselves use general knox for example wrote in disgust to washington after the Shay's rebellion that americans were after all quote unquote men actual men possessing all the turbulent passion belonging to that animal. Throughout the secret discussion at the Constitutional Convention, it was clear that this distrust of man was first and foremost a distrust of the common man and democratic rule. rebellion came to oppose to debt crisis among citizens and the state government that had increased efforts to collect taxes, both on individual and on their trades, which General Knox was disgusted by, calling those who had rebelled animals. And yet, there was another side to the picture. The fathers were intellectual hearers of 17th century English republicanism, with its opposition to arbitrary rule and faith in popular sovereignty. If they feared the advance of democracy, they also had misgivings about turning to the extreme right, having recently experienced a bitter revolutionary struggle with an external power beyond their control. They were in no mood to follow Hobbes' to his conclusion that any kind of government must be accepted in order to avert the anarchy and terror of a state of nature. What the fathers meant by turning into extreme right was becoming a capitalist country, which in my eyes wouldn't make sense because I care about human rights. Unwilling to turn their backs on republicanism, the fathers also wished to avoid violating the prejudice of the people, notwithstanding the oppression and injustice experienced among us from democracy, said George Mason. The genius of the people is in favor of it, and the genius of the people must be consulted mason admitted that we had been too democratic but feared that we should incautiously run into the opposite extreme james madison who had quite rightfully been called the philosopher of the constitution told the delegates it seems indispensable that the mass of citizens should not be without a voice in making the laws which they are to obey, and in choosing the magistrates who are to administer them. James Wilson, the outstanding jurist of the age, later appointed to the Supreme Court by Washington, said again and again, the ultimate power of government must of necessity reside in the people. This the fathers commonly accepted for if government did not proceed from the people from what other source could it legitimately come to adopt any other premise not only would be inconsistent with everything they had said against british rule in the past but would open the gates to an extreme concentration of power in the future this basically meaning how they were against British rule in the past but yet wanted the same ideas as them and would create too much power on one side if the masses were turbulent and unregenerate and yet if government must be founded upon their suffrage and consent what could a constitution maker do one thing that fathers did not propose to do because they thought it impossible was to change the nature of men to conform with a more ideal system. They were inordinately confident that they knew what man always had been and what he always would be. The 18th century mind had Great faith in universals. Back then, our ancestors thought they couldn't change the nature of a man. But nowadays, it's became as simple as just creating new technology or something new that can change a person's whole lifestyle. It was too much to expect that vice could be checked by ritual. The fathers relied instead upon checking vice with vice. Madison once objected during the convention that Governor Morris was forever inculcating the utter political depravity of men and the necessity of opposing one vice and interest to another vice and interest. And yet, Madison himself, in the Federalist Number 51, later set forth an excellent statement of the same thesis. Ambition must be made to counter-interact ambition. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuse of government, but what is government itself? But the greatest of all reflection on human nature, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed and in the next place of league. It to control itself. I completely agree with Madison, especially in the beginning of this thesis, where he states ambition must be made to counteract ambition because it could lead to a burnout. If, in a state that lacked constitutional balance, one class or one interest gained control, they believed it would surely plunder all other interests, the fathers, of course, were especially fearful that the poor plunder the rich, but most of them would probably have admitted that the rich unrestrained would also plunder the poor. This meaning, if there wasn't any rich, there wouldn't be any poor, and if there wasn't any poor, there wouldn't be any rich. In practical form, therefore, the quest of the fathers reduced primarily to search for constitutional devices that would force various interests to check and control one another. Among those who favored the federal constitution, three such devices were distinguished. The fact that devices means advantage is pretty scary because nowadays devices are phones or technology and they are used to control one another. The first of these was the advantage of federal government in maintaining order against popular uprising or majority rule in a single state of faction might arise and take complete control by force But if the states were bound in federation, the central government could step in and prevent it. This advantage shows us the beginning of how the central government had power of the state government. The second advantage of good constitutional government resided in the mechanism of representation itself. In a small, direct democracy, the unstable passions of the people would dominate lawmaking, but a representative government, as Madison said, would refine and enlarge the public views by passing them through the medium of a chosen body of citizens. What Madison meant by through the medium of a chosen body of citizens would be as a senator or elective that will become a delegate or someone in the political party. The third advantage of the government was that each element should be giving its own house of legislature and over both houses there should be a set of capable, strong and impartial executive armed with the veto power. This split assembly would contain within itself an organic check and would be capable of self-control under the governance of the executive. The whole system was to be caped by an independent judiciary, the inevitable tendency of the rich and the poor to plunder each other would be kept in hand. This is the upcoming of the three parts of our federal government, which would be the executive, where the president is usually located, the legislative, where the Senate and House of Representatives are, and the judicial, which is the Supreme Court, and many lower courts. It is ironical that the Constitution which Americans venerate so deeply is based upon a political theory that at one crucial point stands in direct antithesis to the mainstream of American democratic faith. Modern American folklore assumes that democracy and liberty are all but identical. And when democratic writers take the trouble to make the distinction, They usually assume that democracy is necessary to liberty, but the Founding Fathers thought that the liberty with which they were most concerned was menaced by democracy, and their minds liberty was linked not to democracy but to property. Basically, our Constitution is based upon a political theory that has now influenced of our American democratic faith. What did the fathers mean by liberty? What did Jay mean when he spoke of the charms of liberty? Or Madison when he declared that to destroy liberty in order to destroy factions would be a remedy worse than the disease? Certainly the men who met at Philadelphia were not interested in extending liberty to those classes in America. The Negro slaves and indentured servants who were most in need of it for slavery recognized in the organic structure of the constitution and indentured servants servitude was no concern of the convention, nor was the regard of the delegates for civil liberties any too tender. It was the opponents of the Constitution who were most active in demanding such vital liberties as freedom of religion, freedom of speech, press, jury, trial, due process, and protection from unreasonable searches and seizures. These guarantees had to be incorporated in the first 10 amendments because the convention neglected to put them In the original document, turning to economic issues, it was not freedom of trade in the modern sense that the fathers were striving for. Although they did not believe in impeding trade unnecessarily, they felt the failure to regulate it was one of the central weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation and they stood closer to the mercantilists than to Adam Smith. Again, liberty to them did not mean free access to the nation's unappropriated wealth. At least 14 of them were land speculators. They did not believe in the right of the squatter to occupy unused land but rather in the right of the absentee owner or speculator to preempt it. According to this paragraph, our first ten amendments were supposed to be on the Constitution, but they were neglected into getting into the document, as well as trade, becoming a weakness of the Articles of Confederation. The liberties that the constitutionalists hoped to gain were chiefly negative. They wanted freedom from fiscal uncertainty and irregularities. In the currency from trade wars among the states, from economic discrimination by more powerful foreign governments, from attack on the creditor class or on property, from popular insurrection. They aimed to create a government that would act as an honest broker among a variety of property interests, giving them all protection for their common enemy and preventing any one of them from becoming too powerful. The convention was a fraternity of types of absentee ownership All properties should be permitted to have its proportionate voice in government. Individual property interests might have to be sacrificed at times, but only for the community of property interests. Freedom for property would result in liberty for men, perhaps not for all men, but at least for all worthy men because men have different faculties and abilities. The fathers believe they acquire different amounts of property. To protect property is only to protect men in the exercise of their natural faculties. Among the many liberties, therefore, freedom to hold and dispose of property is paramount democracy unchecked rule by the masses is sure to bring Arbitrary redistribution of property, destroying the very essence of liberty. So freedom of property was released to men, but not all men. Which means those who were slaves didn't get any property. Just those who were wealthy, as well as worthy men. A cardinal tent in the faith of the men who made the Constitution was a belief that democracy can never be more than transitional stage in government, that it always evolves into either a tyranny, the rule of the rich demagogue who had patronized the mob, or an aristocracy, the original leaders of the democratic elements. So, the principle of those who made the constitution believed that the democracy would either end up in a tyranny or in an aristocracy. What encouraged the fathers about their own era, however, was the broad desperation of landed property. The small land-owning farmers had been troublesome in recent years, but there was a general conviction that Under a properly made constitution, a modus vivendi could be worked out with them. The possession of moderate plots of property presumably gave them a sufficient stake in society to be safe and responsible citizens under the restraint of balanced government. Influence in government would be proportionate to property merchants and great landholders would be dominant, but small property owners would have an independent and far from negligible voice. It was politic as well as just, said Madison, that the interests and rights of every class should be duly represented and understood in the public councils and John Adams declared that there could be no free government without a democratical branch in the Constitution. Having property back then made you stay in a higher class in the society than those who did not. At the very beginning, contemporary opponents of the Constitution foresaw an apocalyptic destruction of local government and popular institution, while conservative Europeans of the old regimen thought the young American republic was a dangerous leftist experiment. Modern critical scholarship, which reached a high point in Charles A. Beard's an economic interpretation of the Constitution of the United States, started a new turn in the debate. The antagonism, long latent between the philosophy of the Constitution and the philosophy of American democracy, again came into the open. Professor Beard's work appeared in 1913 at the peak of the progressive era when the muck-raking fever was still high. Some readers tend to conclude from this finding that the fathers were selfish. reactionaries who do not deserve their high place in American esteem. Still more recently, other writers, inverting this logic, have used Beard's fact to praise the fathers from the opposition to democracy and as an argument for returning, again, the idea of republic. In this paragraph... Our founding fathers didn't know to become either a democracy or a republic or becoming a left or a right. They were indecisive for what our government was going to look like. In fact, the father's image of themselves as moderate Republicans standing between political extremes was quite accurate. They were impelled by class motives more than pietistic writers like to admit, that they were also controlled, as Professor Beard himself has recently emphasized, by statesmanlike sense of moderation and scrupulously republican philosophy. Any attempt, however, to tear their ideas out of 18th century context is sure to make them starkly reactionary consider for example the favorite maxim of john Jay: the people who own the country ought to govern it to the fathers this was a simply a swift axiomatic statement of the stake in society theory of political rights. A moderate conservative position under 18th century conditions of property distribution in America. Under modern property relations, this maxim demands a drastic restriction of the base of political power. A large portion of the modern middle class and it is the strength of the class upon which balanced governments depend, is propertyless, and the urban proletariat, which the father so greatly feared is almost one half of the population. Further, the separation of ownership from control that has come with the corporation deprives Jay's maxim of 20th century, meaning even for many property people, the 600,000 stockholders of the American Telephone and Telegraph Company not only do not acquire political party by virtue of their stock ownership, but they do not even acquire economic power. They cannot control their own company. The fathers had this image of control which affected the American telephone and telegraph company yet they didn't have a political power but they didn't have economic power over their own company from a humanistic standpoint there is a serious dilemma in the philosophy of the fathers which derives from the conception of men they thought man was a creature of a rapturous self-interest and yet they wanted him to be free free in essence to contend to engage in an umpired strive to use property to get property they accepted the mercantile image of life as an eternal battleground and assumed the hobbistane war of each against all, they did not propose to end, to put an end to this war, but merely to stabilize it and make it less murderers. They had no hope. They offered none for any ultimate organic change in the way men conduct themselves. The result was that while they thought self-interest, the most dangerous and unbrokeable quality of men, they necessarily underwrote it in trying to control it. In my opinion, I totally agree with the last statement that states they necessarily underwrote it, trying to control it, which in a nutshell is they were too busy trying to cover everything that they ended up covering most of it and not all of it that concluded this podcast reading hope you guys have a nice day bye